This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. It's good to be back with you all again. This is the second show in our new format. As we told you the last time that we got together, we, we have missed being with our audience, with our listeners. But Marcus, remember, the one thing that has been a uh, uh, it's such a pleasure for both of us is the fact that we've been hearing from people about how they missed hearing us on the radio, but they have been enjoying the podcast. And so it's wonderful to have a way to kind of re-engage the listeners again. Yeah, I think I think it's long overdue given the the forced hiatus that we've that we've been on. And um, you know, I'm I'm really I'm really excited to explore and discover uh, what other possibilities this new platform, this new Zoom platform, uh, might offer for both of us. I mean, as, as Exactly. And talking about that again. So I'm, I'm coming to you all from my home office. Uh, Marcus yeah. is once again, if you can I'm see in my him, home office as he, well, he is relaxing. On my sofa. That's right. He's <laughs> relaxing on the sofa in his home. And I had said, Marcus, last time, maybe I need to kind of shift my office around and get a sofa in yeah. here, too, so I can kind of just look really at ease. Well, well, I'm, I'm on the sofa, but I'm not exactly relaxing. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, we want to remind you you all that it is really good and we're so glad to be able to reconnect with you all we re- mm. were able to reconnect with you all last week and here we are once again this week marcus that conversation you know was interesting uh, it, it, it i think it flowed really well especially in the context of this new format um we are really really grateful to to blue ridge public radio and everyone there for figuring out a way to make this work as we are all at home in the middle of this COVID crisis. Um, Another good thing about being able to get back in touch with you all, our listeners, is the fact that we've gone from 30 minutes, Marcus, to an hour. Yeah. You know, you and I have been kind of talking about that for a while because um, we did tell you all the last time that we were together that Marcus and I, you know, will be in the studio. We'll do that show for 30 minutes and we'll leave the studio and stand outside Blue Ridge Public Radio's buildings, probably talking for another good 30 minutes to 45 minutes about things that have come up during the show. So it's been kind of an after show that no one gets a chance to listen to. Yeah, 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 definitely. And 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 if there's any silver lining and uh, this this hiatus we've been struggling with and the broader pandemic crisis, uh, maybe it's that hey, you know, the show has now expanded to an hour, <laughs> so <laughs> we have more time now to share with our listeners some of those conversations, those rich conversations that typically spill over into um, uh, conversations that were taking place after the formal 30 minute show right. um, ha- ha- shows, you know, had ha- ha- long concluded. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited for this additional time. Um, I'm excited to, uh, to, 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 to delve more deeply into topics uh, mm-hmm. within that extra time. So we'll see how this goes. Right. And Marcus also, you know, just to remind our listeners again, that we, we have a new, uh, a new time, I guess a new time slot, you would yeah. call it. We're uh, airing on Fridays at nine o'clock, 9 a.m. on Fridays and on Saturday at 3 p.m. So you can get the show, you can hear the show on the radio. And we remind you again, that if you don't get a chance, to hear it um, when it's when it is broadcast on the radio, you can 
pick up the podcast that so many of you all have been doing. And so we hope that you'll continue to do that. And another thing that we hope you will continue to do is just kind of get in touch with us. Let us know what you're thinking. Uh, it has been so great to hear from so many people. Marcus, I think I mentioned this in the last time that we, the last time that we were together that, you know, I've gotten uh, messages as far away as Texas. I think I even had a phone <laughs> call one time. Well, I got an email and then did a phone call with someone from Dublin, Ireland, who had actually heard the podcast and wanted to have a conversation about uh, something that we had discussed on the show. So it's wow. good to hear that we have such a far reach. It is so wonderful. Yeah. Um, but here we are. Here we are again. And Marcus, you remember in the last in the last show, we 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 talked about community, and eventually we'll come back to that. But you you know you raised some points about what do we mean by community. Mm-hmm. And I think that given the current um, the current state that we find ourselves in, a, a lot of this has been precipitated by the COVID crisis. Um, people are talking about, okay, uh, what does it mean to kind of live in community? How do we get through these crises together? Are we mm-hmm. really together? Remember, my, uh, Marcus, I told you, um, and we really want to pick up on where we left off in that last conversation, that there have been these major questions that have kind of been circulating around in my head. Um, and one of those questions, and, and I did remind you all, and I said this to our listeners last time, that I, these are questions that I, I use in the classroom as well when I teach cl- my classes. Um, last semester, I taught the history of the Civil War and Reconstruction, but I began that class with talking about, you know, who, who are we? And thinking about who are we as a people, who are we as a community, as a state, as a country, and who do we wish or who do we hope to be? In our show prep, you and I were talking about these questions, and you added in a third question. So I'm giving you the floor right now to bring up that third question. Yeah, and, and, the, and the, that, that other question was, um, is there a we in the first place? Mm. Is there a we in the first place? And I think the question that I added – um, to that third question was, should there be a we? Right. Um, and to connect these questions to the conversation that we had um, last time about the importance of story and the mm-hmm. role of story in helping to foster community, uh, I, I, I think that, that one of the issues raised by the question, is there a we, has to do with what I would say the... I guess I would refer to it as the politics of storytelling, which is mm-hmm. to say whose story is given the most authority, right. right? Whose story ends up holding sway in the broader popular imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that in many ways uh, has been definitive. That dynamic has been definitive of the African-American experience in this country, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this ongoing struggle to, to find our own to find our own story, mm-hmm. to construct that story, and then share that story on our own terms, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But the struggle has been that um, <laughs> the ruling class, the dominant American society, has preferred to construct our our story for us, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then sort of deliver that story to us. Um, right. And so, and so, story becomes in that res- in this respect the act of storytelling, the construction of story becomes a kind of political battle, uh, battleground. Right. Um, that leads us again, back to this question, 
is there a we? Mm-hmm. Has there ever really been a we? And then should there be a we? Right. How and can know- there how can there be a we if if space is not created for multiple stories to be right. told and shared? on the terms of the actual storytellers themselves. Right. That to me is a crucial issue to keep in mind. Right, I think Marcus, in, in many ways, I agree with you too. And you bring up this thing about whose story. And it reminds me of an essay that I wrote back in 2014, it, which was, is kind of fortuitous that I wrote it then because given what we're going, to, going through right now with uh, looking at the narrative of American history, that was at the heart of that essay that I wrote called Whose mm-hmm. Story Democratizing America's collective historical memory. It was funny, I used that term democratizing. I'm not really sure exactly what that means now, looking at that from <laughs> what four, four nearly five years uh, back. But again, a piece of that essay was about, okay, this collective narrative that we tell ourselves, that certain people have been written out of that narrative. Mm-hmm. And so now we're kind of seeing a shift and how will we be able to incorporate these other stories into this larger narrative of American history? And how will American history look different as we incorporate those into, into that story? Yeah. And my questions, Marcus, of, of who are we and who do we hope and who do we want to be really grow out of you know, my reading of American history. I'm a, a, a historian by training, teach American history. Uh, think about the founding documents, our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence itself, which is all men are created equal. You know, uh, this has been used by so many people around the world. Um, Ho Chi Minh in, in Indochina and Vietnam would use those words when he would call for uh, the independence of Vietnam uh, from, from France and then the struggle against the United States itself. Um, Martin Luther King would reference those words in, in uh, 1963 in the uh, March on in the I Have a Dream speech in, uh, at the March on Washington, where he would actually say, you know, we've come here to cash a check. And that was the check that he was referring to. But he also said that it had to come back historically uh, marked insufficient funds. But here we are, those words that are in the declaration. And then again, too, you and I talked about the fact that the Constitution itself begins with what word yeah. we we the people who are we so those questions is is in the in that context that those questions have emerged for me you know in the last show we also talked even though you know we talked a little about, bit about what what COVID has revealed and we're going to do a deeper dive into that at some other time but we raised the point about leadership too you know, how is how how does leadership look to us today as we try to navigate through these different um, crises that we're going through? COVID has laid open so many things for us that glaring uh, deficiencies in our society that you um, so um, so instructively pointed out as we as we we talked about that in the last show. I'm thinking now, you know, looking at leadership and leading us through this, we come to the uh, to the murder of George Floyd on Memorial Day this year and all that that has uh, has created and 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 cause to kind of be at work in our society today. But leadership, Marcus, what is leadership looking like to you right now? And, and a lot of people right now using this term too, Marcus, which I would love to go deeper into this at some point um, about collaborative leadership. What does collaborative leadership look like? Yeah, 
this is this is a very interesting um concept to me in part because when i think about the his, uh american political history um and, and I, when i when i think about who what what groups of individuals uh play the most prominent role in shaping the levers of government um, and shaping the country's political agendas, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't know that I would describe that process necessarily as, as collaborative. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, we're talking about political elites for the most part. We're talking about economic elites for the most part. So um, I would want to trouble exactly what we mean by collaborative. Are we talking about a mode of collaboration that is, that is, that is radically democratic in nature and inclusive? Or are we talking about a, a mode of collaboration that is rather narrow and, and elitist? Um, and perhaps even aristocratic um, in orientation. And so I think that we need to achieve some clarity with respect to what we really mean when, when we invoke this term of, of collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I like to just sort of reiterate a point that I made last time about, about I think, the style of leadership that I think is, is very much needed right now. Right. So last time we talked quite a bit about um, the need to the need for both the present and the future to be informed by the past, mm -hmm. right? Um, more specifically, by a serious uh, sort of rigorous engagement of the past, um, a serious study of the past, and I I think that one of the most pressing uh, needs that we have now uh, has to do with a style of leadership that is committed to that, that is committed to just that, mm -hmm. right? To seriously engaging the past for, for the specific purpose of allowing it to inform both the present and the future. I think no, that right. I think that the leadership that we're that we're currently witnessing is not characterized in that way at all. No, right, um, right. I, it seems to me in fact to be a form of leadership that is very much driven by the American capitalist ethos. Mm -hmm. Very much driven by what I would consider free market ideology, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. um, come what may, <laughs> right? Uh, right, right? So, so that's what comes to mind for me when you when you, when you bring up this idea, these ideas of leadership and then collaborative, leadership. right? And thinking about leadership, Marcus, I think that's a good segue into a further discussion about the George Floyd murder uh -huh. and all that it has, uh, all that it has led to in our society right now. What we're going through and thinking about leadership, and now is a time for real leadership that is willing to take those looks back. Right. And when you look back, it's not pretty what we see. And we've got to be honest with ourselves about what that story looks like and what it has been, especially for certain groups of people. Mm -hmm. And how willing are we to do that? It's going to take real leadership to do that. I, I referenced in that last conversation Lincoln as one of those unique people in American history, I think, who had that ability to both look forward and backward. Mm -hmm. There have been very few people who have done that. Um, but it, it, I don't, in fact, I wouldn't point to any other president that I think that had the ability to do that. But he was, um, he became president at a time where I think he was very much forced uh, to, to take in consideration the past mm -hmm. and and to think about the future at the same time as president. But we haven't seen that in in leaders uh, 
up to this point, but I'm hoping that that type of leadership will will emerge as we think about this crisis that we're currently going through. So looking at at the murder of George Floyd, Marcus, we raised the point that this is nothing new in our Mm -hmm. history. While Mm -hmm. some people are looking at it and saying, you know, oh boy, how could this happen? You and I were referencing stories of where this has been a recurring feature of American history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I I raised the example of Mary Turner. I mean, I won't rehash that, but there are so many other examples um, of black bodies being publicly executed, right, as as um, as by white mobs, um, executions that that state. Uh, that local and state law enforcement agencies turned a blind eye to, the federal government turned a blind eye to. Another example that comes to mind for me would be from, would be from the 1930s, um, the case of Claude Neal. Claude Neal is accused of, I believe he was accused of raping um, a young white woman. Uh, and just to keep it uh, short, he was not given a fair trial. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, was taken, I believe it was, it was either to Alabama or Florida, um, and tickets were sold. Now, now, understand. I think it's important for our listeners to sort of understand this history and this legacy. Um, Claude Neal. So, so it, it was determined essentially by again a white mob that Claude Neal was guilty. Mm-hmm. He was not going to stand trial. Um, he he was guilty of doing this according to this, according to this white mob. Um, and he and, and it was determined that he would be publicly executed in the most spectacular way imaginable. And so tickets were sold um, in churches, right, in other venues um, for people to attend this lynching. Uh, white pastors sold, you know, and made announcements in their church, you know, hey, you know, bring your kids, bring your wives, bring your loved ones, attend the Claude Neal lynching on this day at this time. It's going to be a, a grand old time, you know. We'll, mm-hmm. you know, ha, you know, we'll, you know, bring your picnic supplies, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, so tickets were sold. Um, his lynching was 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 heavily attended, and just to think quickly about what actually was done to this man who was not given a fair trial, right? Um, and by the way, prior 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 to him being lynched, the NAACP tried to get involved. Um, and, 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 and advocate on behalf of Claude Neal. But basically what happened again here, the federal government said, hey, you know, this is outside of our jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't really, you know, we, we have to take a hands-off approach. So long story short, um, the day comes for Claude Neal's lynching. Um, he's ushered down a gauntlet of jeering white people um, toward the lynching tree. He's being spat upon. He's, you know, people are hurling epithets at him. Um, all, all manner of brutality is being sent Claude Neal's way. He gets to the tree. Um, he's strung up. And keep in mind, you know, people want to, they, they paid to see this. Mm-hmm. They paid to see this. And so, you know, they want souvenirs, mm-hmm. right? So what happens? Claude Neal's fingers are cut off one by one. And the fingers are thrown into the crowd because these people want their souvenirs, mm-hmm. right? And all of this is just galvanizing caught even more, right? And so um, what happens next is, because keep in mind, he was accused of, of, of a crime that in this country at that time was, was probably considered the worst crime that a black man could commit. He violated the, the, the sanctity of white womanhood. So what do we have to do? We have to castrate him. So he's castrated, and he's then made to eat his own genitalia. This is all before he was lynched. Mm-hmm. He's castrated, made to eat his own genitalia. Then he's lynched. 
then he's lynched. I tell you. That's the, and so my point here is that that is the legacy. That's, that is a shining example of the legacy of white American terrorism against black bodies in this country. Mm-hmm. And it's within that context, it's, it's within the context of, of, of the story of Mary Turner from the early 19-teens that we have to think about George Floyd. The right. It is right. nothing new. I would even argue that not only is it par for the course, has it been par for the course in American society? I would argue that that, that way of, of policing and brutalizing black bodies is embedded in the very fabric of American society, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is why, you know, and I'll, I'll state this point again as well. The fact that it took George Floyd being publicly murdered over the course of eight minutes and 46 seconds to galvanize uh, a national and international racial justice protest movement to me is nothing to celebrate right. as far as i'm concerned it is an embarrassing indictment on america's lack of historical knowledge right. Um, right and and i don't hear anybody right now having that conversation right right and so, it's a conversation that needs to be had marcus and yeah. so it's given this this murder that we watched uh so so publicly has now given rise to a movement you know, the Black Lives Matter movement really has started before, and, and it's been in the context of the death of, of Trayvon Martin, uh, Michael Brown, uh, Freddie Gray, many others that we could go down and list these names. But the Black Lives Matter movement has grown out of this. And so we want to spend a little time talking about that. But in the last show, our listeners will remember when we came to you last time that we use that hour to just kind of talk among ourselves, which we rarely get the opportunity to do. <laughs> yeah. We talked about uh, how we love to do the reflection shows, but normally we have a guest on with us to kind of talk about some of these important topics that we have been, that we've had the privilege of talking about over the course of the weeks, uh, the course of the show. And so today we're happy to be able to say that we do have a guest, a guest that I have wanted to bring to the show for a long time. And so just as I get, we get ready to introduce him, we just want to remind you again, for those who are just joining us, that this is the Waters and Harvey Show uh, here in Asheville, North Carolina at Blue Ridge Public Radio. We're glad to have you all join us. And we're glad to be joined again by, uh, by a real dear, dear friend and mentor to me, Dr. William Turner. And Dr. Turner is from Harlan County, Kentucky. He was born and raised there. He was born and raised the son of an intergenerational coal mining family and is a graduate of the University of Kentucky. And he holds a doctorate in sociology and anthropology from Notre Dame University. Dr. Turner is recognized, and he truly is, as a foremost scholar on blacks, on the black experience in Appalachia. In fact, I owe a deep, 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 debt of gratitude to Dr. Turner for the work that he has done over the course of uh, his career to really bring the story of African-Americans in this region of the country in Southern Appalachia really to the foreground. In 1985, working with his, with his colleague at the time, uh, Mr. Ed Cabell, they published um, an anthology called Blacks in Appalachia, which in, in my opinion, really staked the claim to this story mm-hmm. in the Southern Appalachian region. So we're glad to have the opportunity to have Dr. Turner here with us. He is actually in Houston, Texas. I think he's sitting in his home office. But Dr. Turner, we want to welcome you to the show. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. Welcome and thank you, Dr. Turner. It's my pleasure to be with you guys. Thank you very much. And uh, 
your your generous introduction uh, humbles me, and uh, you're always putting some kind of crown above my head there, and I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to grow up to it. <laughs> right. Well, Bill, look, and and, we're, and and rather than call you Doctor Turner, we're gonna, I'm gonna call you Bill. Bill, um, please. And call you Bill uh, while we're here on the show. You are among friends. We want to thank you again for taking the time to join us. Marcus and I have been talking about how much we wanted to have you on the show for a while, and even though we're not gonna talk a lot about um, your work today, because we want to talk to you about some of these other topics that we've been discussing: George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter movement, because we know that you have some real insight and some opinions on on these issues we're going to have you back at some point to just really delve into your career because it's been a very storied career but it, you know can we just begin by you telling us a little bit a, a little bit about your background a little bit about your home in, in Kentucky. Marcus, when he, he noted yesterday that you were from Lynch, um, Kentucky, he said, okay, I've got to bring that up. <laughs> Go ahead, Marcus. <laughs> yeah, no, I, right, right. I, I was just remarking, Bill, that, uh, you know, when I think about um, the names that, 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 that certain Southern cities get, you know, Lynch, Lynchburg, you know, I'm, I'm just, it, th- th- those names, that nomenclature raises questions for me. Um, and so anyway, I'm just, I'm just curious to hear from you a little more about what it was like to live in a, in a, in an Eastern Kentucky town with the name like Lynch. No problem. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, let me kind of go back. Cause in terms of my background, I first want to say how, Humbled and thankful I am to uh, Nancy Cable and uh, the people at the University of North Carolina Asheville who honored me with uh, an honorary doctorate that I was to receive back in May, but the COVID threw that away, threw that off, so to speak. And so I want to thank Dr. Cable uh, and uh, your faculty and staff for that honor. First, Marcus, uh, like um, many, many places in the United States of America, uh, they are name places uh, uh, assigned to people, okay? So my hometown in Harlan County, Kentucky, was a corporate entity owned totally by the largest company in the United States at the time was United States Steel. Mm-hmm. US Steel. The greatest producer of steel in the world mm. uh, in 1917 when this town came online. And it just so happened that the president of United States Steel's name was Lynch, L-Y-N-C-H. Uh, the company itself was owned by, you know, great Baron uh, Andrew Carnegie, Carnegie. and mm-hmm. the people in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So that uh, my father, who worked for this coal mine in Harlan County for 45 years, my grandfather worked in that same coal mine. My uncles worked in that same coal mine. Hmm. Uh, so uh, Harlan became a kind of uh, epicenter of the coal industry. Uh, for example, U.S. Steel also owned a large coal mining facility in Gary, West Virginia, uh, coal town, Gary, West Virginia. On the other end of the spectrum where they took their coal and produced steel was Gary, Indiana. Indiana. Mm-hmm. 
Gary, Indiana, Gary, West Virginia, was named after U.S. Steel's lawyer, whose name was Gary. <laughs> so the guy's name could have been Brown or Jones or Waters or Harvey or Amsterdam or, you know, just go around the United States. You'll find that a lot of these places were named after uh, people who had economic ties there. Uh, mm. But on the other hand, you, you know, as far as names go, uh, I'm sure many people in the great state of Alabama sometime ask themselves, how did we get all of these Native American names mm -hmm. in Alabama? Uh, the, the name Mississippi mm -hmm. is a Native American tribe, Tuscaloosa, Talladega. Mm -hmm. uh, so you see, it's, it's just not a uh, something that came out of thin air. And of course, on the other hand of the United States steel conglomerate uh, early on in the last century was Birmingham, Alabama, which is also the largest school, one of the largest steel producing towns in America was around, you know, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania was another one. So, yeah, we grew up in this little town uh, in eastern Kentucky, far down in the woods, uh, uh, at the bottom of the highest mountain in the state of Kentucky. My mother was born there. Uh, and of course, when I grew up and I understood what it meant to be from a little town with a name like that, and a place that was stereotypically thought to be all white. Uh, you know, you're in Harlan County, you're in uh, this, this space where uh, the, the stereotype of the white there, the white people were the other. There's also, uh, I've often said, boy, I wonder what they would have been called had there not been any black people around there. You see, because the whites in that part of the country were stereotyped in a very negative kind of way, you know. Uh, so, yeah, but on the other hand, it, it was much like Asheville, who had its black center down by the YMI there. Well, we had our place like that. Right, right. Where, the, where black people gathered, but then we had a black community. Uh, in fact, it was until I was 20 when I went to the University of Kentucky. Uh, that was the first time I realized that uh, black people were not uh, a large group amongst the whole groups. I mean, I, when I first went to college, I, I called my parents and I said, my God, I've never seen this many white people in my life. <laughs> because even though we had grown up in the middle of eastern Kentucky, out of the shadows of everywhere, one third of the population was black because U.S. Steel imported all these black people out of mm -hmm. Alabama into mm -hmm. eastern Kentucky to work in the coal mines. And then on the other hand, we had people named Hoiska and Vachini and Leblansky and Isaacs. Isaacs, you might say, people from Lebanon, all over the world were coming through Ellis Island. They ended up going through the Alleghenies in Pennsylvania, worked in the mines there for a while, and they came on over into East Kentucky. So I grew up in a very heterogeneous place. Mm -hmm. uh, there were ethnic groups from all over the world. There were 43 ethnic groups in my little hometown when I was born there in 1945, and it was 12,000 people in that little space uh, way back then. Uh, of course, right now, uh, there are more people in my neighborhood than there are in my hometown mm -hmm. because the, the cold industry literally died there uh, right. 20 years ago. Right. Nobody's worked in the mine. But my father raised 10 of us uh, in, that, in that situation, my father and my right. mother. And uh, it, was, uh, it wasn't like you, you read. 
All right. Well, Bill, even though you're, you're now down in Houston and you and your wife Vivian are there because your grandchildren are there, you right. decided yeah. to move there because the grandkids were there, your heart really, and I can hear it in the conversations that I have with you, your heart is still in Kentucky. Your heart is still in Southern Appalachia. And Marcus and I have been talking about um, current events and talking about uh, the George Floyd murder. And I know that you and I have kind of talked privately about this and you have a perspective on this but you also recently wrote a commentary i think just a few weeks ago in a publication in kentucky i believe it's in kentucky called the daily yonder um a commentary on the black lives matter movement that looked at what was going on in the mountains i mean it's interesting first of all you know establishing that there was an african-american African-Americans who lived in the mountains itself. Mm-hmm. That was part of what drove my work here of looking at Asheville and Western North Carolina. But Marcus and I here and you t- here tell us about these, these, uh, these pockets of communities throughout Eastern Kentucky, but um, race relations there and how has it changed? What prompted you to write this recent commentary on black, on the black lives matter movement in, in Kentucky? Okay. Uh, let me let me mention something first in terms of blacks in the Appalachian region, uh, where people basically have this idea there are no blacks in Western North Carolina mm-hmm. to speak of. Uh, one has to well, l- let me say something else first. A uh, context. There's a quote I read somewhere once that says, uh, "History teaches, but it has very few pupils." <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, Malcolm X used to say, uh, Malcolm's quote was, of all our studies, history can best reward our efforts. If one really studied the history of black people in America, you will discover that people of African descent, Africans, basically they were Moors, Mm M-O-O-R-S, out of North Africa, who came into the P.D. River Valley of South Carolina and into the Appalachian region of Western North Carolina, around what we now call Bryson City. And they came there with the Spanish conquistadors in 1526. Mm-hmm. Now that was almost a hundred years before they came to Port O'Connor out near Hampton Roads in Virginia right. in 1619. Mm-hmm. So that the first black footprints in the American that we know of today was in Appalachia, in Southern Appalachia, in North Carolina, in the Smoky Mountains, and not on some plantation in South mm-hmm. Carolina or Mississippi or Louisiana. They were in the mountains of the South. And if you look at the entire civil rights movement, all the way up to this day, you will see this constant presence of abolitionists out of mountains, mm-hmm. of Jonesboro, mm-hmm. Tennessee, had one of the first abolition movements was in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Uh, One has to remember that Carter G. Woodson himself came out of Appalachia in the the state of West Virginia, the father of Black History Month. Right. And And, there was Booker T. Washington and and a whole host of people uh, from all walks of life who came out of the Appalachian region, uh, uh, not too far from where you guys are, maybe two hours west on Interstate 40. You would end up in a place called New Market, Tennessee, where the Highlander Center, where Martin Luther King, Septima Clark, and all these people met in the early 1950s when black people and white people couldn't get together anywhere in the South. They got together in just east of Knoxville, and they literally planned the civil rights movement. Uh, that great song called 
We Shall Overcome. It came out of the nourishing that went on in the highlands in the, in the mountains of the South. John Brown started the Civil War, if you will, in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. That's as Appalachian as you can get. Carter G. Woodson studied at Berea College in Kentucky, which was the first interracial and coeducational institution in the South. Uh, uh, there was a Black Mountain College right there where you guys are, mm -hmm. uh, just east of you in Black Mountain, Swaminoa, over that area. Where was that in the 1930s, where you had these integrated, quote, communities in, in North Carolina, uh, doing things in the 30s and the 40s that you could never speak of. No wonder I read in the New York Times this morning that they described Asheville as, quote, a liberal mountain town in North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys are kind of chuckling about that. Right. But the fact of the matter is Asheville itself uh, represents the very epitome of the kind of black leadership that came out of North Carolina, mm. ideas coming out of that place, uh, you know, uh, 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 so when we look at this history, I think the thing we can go back to in terms of your, your question is that every time I go into a bookstore and you see all these things to read, to listen to the ideas you all just discussed about what we mean by we, it just seems to me that uh, uh, we've gotten to a place where this importance of history that I tried to uh, write about in that article to which you referred, that the Black Lives Movement and how whites got involved with it in these places where there supposedly are no blacks in mm. Western North Carolina, in Southwestern Virginia, in West Virginia, Eastern Kentucky. But the fact of the matter is, if you study it, you will see that white people have been involved in these things going back to the abolition days. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's just gotten to the place where too many people try to understand history by their dependence on YouTube, uh, their dependence <laughs> on TikTok, their dependence on Facebook, their dependence on Snapchat, and these relatively low-key channels that people get all this kind of strange information. And people are desperate to understand what's going on with Black Lives Matter, uh, mm. but they, their appetite for information takes them to television shows, it takes mm. them to social media, it takes them to these slick video games and even comic books, you know, like Black Panther came out of a comic book. Mm -hmm. And so not enough people are really reading so that they don't understand that America was one of the only nation states in the course of human history that was built, founded on excluding certain people. <laughs> right. Once you start there, you will not be surprised by all of these things that we now see. If you just understand this is the way, this peculiar institution, this is the way we are. And so some of the things that we see, I don't know why they surprise people so much. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, now, Bill, you know, so part of what I'm hearing in the, in the, um, the very robust um, uh, um, commentary you're offering here is that in a way, uh, white participation has always been present in the black freedom struggle um, mm -hmm. as far back as we can remember. Um, and as you point out in your, in your op-ed, we're continuing to see black involvement in the Black Lives Matter protest taking place right now in Eastern Kentucky in Harlan, in Harlan County. 
a question that I've been discussing back and forth um, with Darren since having read that op-ed and really even, even before I read the op-ed um, concerning other areas where the same phenomenon is happening is basically what are we to make of this participation, right? What, 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 what is the significance of, of white people making a decision after George Floyd's death to then march on behalf of, of, of black lives, to, to march on behalf of racial justice, um, as if efforts weren't being made prior to George Floyd, long before George Floyd's death, right, to bring about racial justice. So I'm, I'm just curious to hear any, any, any insight you may have as to, as to what are we to make of this? Because I, to, to be frank with you, there, there's a part of me that is suspicious of it. Mm -hmm. um, and that wonders what is actually motivating it. And again, it, it kind of goes back to a point I made earlier about, about, how, about why it took George Floyd's spectacular execution to galvanize the, the, the large-scale protests that we're witnessing now. So any, so any thoughts you might have about that? Right. right. And Bill, I'm also curious, and to piggyback off of what Marcus just said, too, um, to get you to, to, to kind of maybe tell us what makes this movement different from the movement that you just described, the, mm -hmm. the, the civil rights movement, which you were so actively involved in. And is there a difference? Do you see a difference in this movement? Well, you know, don't doesn't every generation have these kind of defining moments? You know, I have teenage grandchildren uh, who uh, I think will remember the uh, George Floyd murder, given the way it was carried and the way it saturated all social media. And my grandchildren, you know, are, are tied into their cell phones and uh, all mm -hmm. manner of... Uh, information that I was not when I was 13. On the other hand, but there were some defining moments when I was 13 and they pulled us together the same way. Uh, people can say what they want to about what triggered the civil rights movement that influenced my life and my generation so much, but I think it was the murder of Emmett Till. You know, mm. Emmett Till's mm. murder uh, was much, uh, ingrained in us by the time that I have a dream speech, which didn't come until 1963, Three. Mm -hmm. when I was a senior in high school. Emmett Till was killed when I was 12 in 1956 or something around that time, mm -hmm. 54. You know, uh, back in those days, our Snapchat, our Facebook, our uh, Twitter was Jet Magazine. Mm -hmm. And you remember Emmett Till's mother, Mamie Till, yep. Mm -hmm. She put her son's tortured body on the front of Jet Magazine and everybody's barbershop showed it to us, but it was two weeks after. Him. Oh my God, look at this, man. But everybody saw it and there was almost a cerebral connection from Monday, Mississippi to Harlem, Kentucky to Black Mountain and Swannanoa and everywhere else you can think of. How did Black people all over this country find out about that? in such a short time and how it galvanized us. Uh, the same way with defining moments here, it seems though that my grandchildren have had several defining moments like George Floyd in their short lifetimes because they remember uh, Trayvon Martin was mm -hmm. what, six mm -hmm. or seven years ago. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. And so these little boys have seen two or three things like that. 
And I think that's what Marcus said starting off here, and that is, uh, surprise? Are you kidding me? This happens often enough, uh, consistently enough, that we have normalized it almost. Mm -hmm. And I believe what happened is that uh, few people, when they saw that heinous uh, execution of that young man on the street with all of the cameras showing it to us, and even yesterday, when the family sued, they showed it again. Uh, it was just so beyond the pale that nobody could really avoid it. No. And I think mm -hmm. that uh, uh, it is breathtaking. It was breathtaking to see the multicultural and the multiracial outpouring. And, and uh, I saw some all-white marches in Big Stone Gap, Virginia, mm -hmm. in uh, Whitesburg, Kentucky. Whitesburg. Now, just think about that, Marcus. Whitesburg, Kentucky, had a <laughs> George Floyd march that was 99% of the people were white in the Walmart parking lot. Yeah. So I just think that whiteness might not mean the same thing to some of these young white kids because, mm. see, they have grown up, unlike their great-grandparents who are my age, uh, grandparents used to steal glimpses of black culture through listening to Sam and Dave and Hold On, I'm Coming back in the 1960s and listening to Elvis Presley imitate all this black cultural ethos. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a whole generation of young white kids who've grown up. They started mm -hmm. out listening to rap in 1980 and 1983. And those kids are now my children's age. And how old are they? My children are 45 years old. Mm -hmm. And so you have two, almost two generations of black kids who have watched and who have identified with and who have tied into the ethos that came out of the black movements that this is just a continuation of. Uh, black Lives Matter, for example, I think that uh, once we strip away uh, uh, some of the parts of it that I don't think anybody understands, the biggest difference is it's, it's a decentralized movement. You know, mm -hmm. in other words, we had Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Right, right. Mm -hmm. A lot of things got channeled through the churches, through Marcus's grandfather, through Marcus's father's generation. Mm -hmm. You know, the ministers in the Black Southern Church who ran the movement. Uh, but on the other hand, there was another uh, uh, angle to that movement that Malcolm X represented, which was more urban. It was more mm -hmm. Chicago. It was more New York. It was more Philadelphia. It didn't have the same roots as Martin Luther King's Southern phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So I think Black Lives Movement is more of that extension of the uh, new militancy that Dr. King talked about when he was telling people, and you might remember, when he gave his speech against the Vietnam War a year mm -hmm. before he died, Martin himself had stepped out to a place where most Black preachers in the United States as, as certainly most of the white evangelical community who went with Martin anyway, they stepped back because they said, whoa, whoa you've extended this beyond civil rights. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you see the Black Life Movement is a kind of, uh, I think what they call uh, intersectionality. It's right. bringing together different sectors, the LBQ community, the I mean, a whole rainbow uh, and it's not an all-black thing, because mm -hmm. if you guys watched the demonstrations as much as I did, you may have noticed, uh, uh, particularly around the 
the destruction of certain statutes which people yeah. took upon themselves, uh, those are primarily white kids out there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're, they're not, you don't see the pictures in Portland I mean, ain't no black people in Portland hardly anyway. Excuse me for right. sounding so strange. <laughs> but let's face it, when you go to that situation in Portland, and that's Oregon. Oregon had laws that would forbade black people to come to the state of Oregon. Mm -hmm. You know, it was worse than Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And now you're seeing out in Portland, Oregon, such a, you know, that kind of movement. So, yes, it's been a defining moment. And uh, that's, the, that's the place where we are. I just hope that people will understand that they need to uh, be uh, uh, much more systematic in what is their sources of information, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is uh, having as bad, a, uh, bad an impact on the extreme right wing who are getting their so-called deep information from these crazy, looney tune, deep internet spaces where people can become so confused because it isn't based on, on history or on truth for that matter. But it's just a, uh, the way the Russians uh, manipulated the election a few years ago is the same way now. Uh, just this morning, uh, I'll stop here. I, I noticed where uh, the uh, uh, Canada and the United States and Great Britain just this morning uh, have charged the Russians with uh, 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 manipulating the data on the COVID vaccines. So, wow. you know, yeah, the world is being driven by some information that we don't know what's what. And it's, a, and it's a shame. And, and, and just once again, just to remind our listeners that this is the Waters and Harvey Show. And we are in a deep, deep conversation with Dr. William Turner, um, who is a native of Kentucky, but living in, in Houston. He's coming to us, joining us from his home office. And I think we're getting a real, real rich history lesson here, aren't we, Marcus, from his experiences in, in the civil rights movement, how it connects with, with the modern Black Lives Matter movement. And Bill, just real quick, you know, as we, we come near the end of the show here, just you brought up the issue of monuments and we're watching a sea change in the South as we're beginning to reconsider the lost cause narrative. Um, are you surprised by, by what is happening? And as an American historian, I find it really interesting that if we went back 150 years now, we would be right in the middle of what was reconstruction the Reconst Reconstruction era after the Civil War. We'd be in the fifth year, I think the fifth year of Reconstruction. And people like Frederick Douglass were, were making the case for, um, for how the narrative about the Civil War and what the Civil War meant um, and what it really meant, um, how that narrative should be constructed. Their voices were drowned out ultimately by the construction of this lost cause narrative. But we're now witnessing what I believe to be a rewriting and reshaping of that narrative. What do we make of this? And how is it, you know, how do, are you surprised to see how it is so, uh, so linked to the Black Lives Matter movement? Hmm. Yeah, the, the monument uh, uh, across the South, uh, when you study it scrupulously, I think what most people will see, uh, if they look at it carefully, is that most of these monuments were built uh, in uh, the middle of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, they came really, really late. 
because the daughters of the American Republic and these people, they wanted to honor their grandparents who had been mm -hmm. uh, involved in wanting to maintain slavery. And what it really shows is that uh, how completely they disregarded the interests and the feelings of the people who had to walk by those every day throughout the South, like I did growing up in Kentucky, every little sound, sound town that had these traffic circles in the middle of them, and that big old statue would be up there, so much so that in Lexington, Kentucky, we had one of a general uh, whose name escapes me, it'll come to me in a minute, but he rode through the Civil War on a beautiful mare. But when, he, when they put his statue up, uh, they had him riding a stallion. And the <laughs> students used to go by that thing every year and paint the genitalia of the stallion with red paint because they knew that he rode a female horse, but when they put the statue up, mm. they made it a male horse. Right. And it was so such, such a joke how people can sometimes distort history like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this idea that we, we, we can put cowl narratives next to these statues, um, I mm. think this is going to go on for a long, long time. But in the meanwhile, I don't think we should lose sight while we lower statues and, and flags and that kind of thing. There's, there are much more tangible things we ought to be keeping our eyes on in terms of what's much more of a better prize is having uh, more black administrators in these colleges where children are learning, uh, more black people at powers of, of uh, boards of directors and trustees and all the various associations that really run the internality of America. So, mm -hmm. you, know, it, you know, that's the essence of the word symbol. You know, a ring is a symbol of your marital fidelity. But God knows what a ring really means is just a symbol. You know, mm -hmm. what if you don't have one? Does that mean you don't love your wife? Of course mm -hmm. not. So the fact that they take that statue down is very symbolic. But what mm -hmm. do you replace it with in terms of the tangible things that make for freedom and justice and right. equality hmm. and the kinds of things that African-Americans want. Uh, I'm not so sure that uh, we're going to be challenged too much by uh, these kind of uh, whether or not uh, these Confederate flags can be thrown. Because quite frankly, uh, uh, we know what those flags really meant. Right. Well, yeah. Marcus, I, I'm going to let you jump in here. Let have the last comment yeah. on that. I think that Bill is right. Yeah. You and I have been talking about it. Um, you know, removing monuments can end up being window dressing, but, you yeah. know, we want to need, we need to go deeper. Yeah, indeed. And I mean, I, as we wrap up here, I, I just think about something locally, the, the monument to Zebulon Vance, right, in downtown Asheville that has now been enshrouded. You know, this is somebody, Confederate, Governor, slave owner, um, who was credited in, in in a speech that he gave, I believe, in 1868, um, with equating social equality with black supremacy, <laughs> right? And this 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 monument has been been in place there since I think the 1890s, I believe. So, um, yeah, I, I would just I would just echo um, Bill's Bill your comments about um, keeping keeping you know the eye on on the real the real issue here, which is about I think power really. Right. right, because I, I don't I don't know the taking down monuments. Now, I, I'm not against taking them down, but I don't know that, I don't know that taking down monuments necessarily translates into power. Um, right. But but I'd like to just quickly return to a question that I asked earlier, which was, 
I, I'm still struggling to, to, to understand or to make sense of why, why it required essentially another kind of um, Emmett Till moment, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Why it required another spectacular execution of a black body in order to launch everything that we're seeing now. In other words, why, why haven't we seen, for example, white people marching in the streets in response to educational inequality or in response to poverty? Or, you know, why did it take this in particular? Why did it take essentially a modern day lynching? Mm-hmm. And that, that to me has, it continues to be a question that, that haunts me and that, and that really um, I have not been able to, to I, I'm still wrestling with it very much so. Well, and I, and it, let, me, it, let me give a quick thought about that, Marcus. Yeah. You know the story of the farmer who couldn't get his mule to move through the field while he was trying to plow. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, people were watching it, and he would say, "Get up here!" And the mule never moved. <laughs> and so he picked up a two before. He walked around slowly, looked the mule in the eye, and busted him in the middle of the head with this two before. And the mule began to plow. And everybody said, "Gee, that was so cool! Why'd you have to do that?" And the farmer said, "Well, you just have to get that mule's attention sometimes." Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, it took that man's life to get everybody's attention. Mm-hmm. And I think, as we tried to say, the real challenge we have is now that we have your attention, how can we keep it from going back to business as usual? Ah, right, right. Ah. You know, how do we how do we turn this into structured learning, deep reflection, uh, 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 going back to King's notion of the beloved community? Mm-hmm. Right, right. You know, because What was more cataclysmic than Dr. King's death? Mm -hmm. And here we are 50 years later, 55 years later, in fact, and some of the same issues that Dr. King talked about, even though we've gone every every January 15th, and he's gotten to the place Martin Luther King's birthday uh, uh, is nothing but a sophisticated groundhog day. You know, everybody comes out of their cave, catches the sunlight, Oh, it's Martin Luther King Day. And then to go back in that hole until next year. <laughs> well, Bill, thank you. We want to thank you. That is a good Thanks place so to end. This has been a great show. And this leaves room for a further conversation with Absolutely. Bill because we want to have him back to talk more about his career and in his active involvement in the civil rights movement. But for now, Marcus and I are just going to take the moment to remind you again that the Waters and Harvey Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can listen to our podcast on bpr.org on the bpr mobile app on apple podcast and google play follow us and get in touch on facebook and twitter and marcus and i are going to look forward to talking to you again 